I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome again to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Every fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening, plant care, pest control, garden design, growing your own fruit and vegetables and container ideas, plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the RHS's team of horticultural advisors based at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Later in this episode, we're going to hear from some of the expert speakers who've been presenting specialist garden talks at the RHS Autumn Shows in London this year. But before that, let's hear some seasonal advice on key jobs gardeners can be tackling in the coming weeks. I'm Chris Smith from Pennar Plants and really we're looking at the vegetable garden and things you can do now. Uh, You can't just sit down and do nothing. If you want nice garlic and onions next year, this is the time to plant your autumn onion sets and certainly to get the garlic in by the end of October. Um, Once you get past that, it's getting a bit late. You can plant broad beans and peas for early crops next year. Again, don't plant them too early. Towards the end of October is fine, early November. And if it's a very uh, cold winter, the peas may need a little bit of protection, but the broad beans will stand anything. It's also worthwhile putting in some salad crops, particularly if you've got a greenhouse or some cloches, because if you grow land cress or mizune or things of that sort, you'll have an abundance of leaves right the way through the winter months. Really for early November, you're beginning to get a bit late to start sowing things that late. Again, if you've got a greenhouse or some protected areas, salad crops, some spring onions, some radishes, they'd be absolutely great. But uh, start thinking about Christmas and then start again in the new year. My name's Neil Hope from the National Vegetable Society. Early November, it's mainly ground clearance and cultivation. Just get everything ready for next year. I mean, I know they say you should better grow vegetables all the year through, but a lot of vegetables do have their time period. Parsnips are good. They say you shouldn't dig your parsnips until you've had the first frost. Or Brussels sprouts. Well, I've got a problem this year in that I've grown my best Brussels sprouts ever, but I was picking them from August... They're halfway through, there's some on my truck here, and they're going to be finished in about a month's time, so I'm not going to have sprouts for Christmas, but I will have parsnips. My name's David Patch, and I work for RV Roger Limited, which are a nurseryman up in North Yorkshire in Pickering. So from November onwards, that's the main season for planting bare root trees, shrubs, fruit trees and roses. Uh, so now's the time to be uh, looking at nurseryman's catalogues, 
making your order, reserving the stock before they start to sell out. Uh, and that way in November and December you can get your bare root plants in the ground while the soil is still relatively warm and there's some moisture in the ground so they can start to root through and establish ready for next year. You can find more information about all aspects of gardening techniques and plants on the advice pages of the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. I'm Tony Dickerson and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. 2015 has been a fabulous year for RHS flower shows. Here on the RHS Gardening Podcast, we brought you interviews with high-profile show garden designers such as Adam Frost, Matthew Wilson and Dan Pearson, whose recreation of Chatsworth Park at Chelsea stunned visitors and won best in show. We've interviewed expert nurserymen, community project leaders and international gardening experts, give you a taste of the sights, smells and excitement of the shows. One aspect of RHS shows that is perhaps less well-known is the opportunity visitors have to hear and see expert talks and demonstrations from specialists in a wide variety of gardening and garden-related topics. For instance, exotic vegetable cultivation, foraging, flower arranging, specialist talks from expert nursery growers or plants people such as tulip growers or the National Plant Collection holders. Shows provide an unrivaled opportunity to hear and speak to those renowned experts at first hand to ask questions and to learn new information and skills. We went to the recent RHS London Harvest Festival show in London to hear some of what was on offer on the lecture stages. Manager of RHS London shows, Orge Rodriguez-Martin. What we do is that we put together the content for each show and we make sure that it's full of interesting uh, nurseries and horticultural related content for the public to enjoy when they come to visit our shows. They offer uh, different content throughout the year. So we have from early spring to the autumn, there's always something going on in the garden. There's something interesting for people to purchase different plants. And uh, what we do is that we bring together the best of the horticultural uh, British business, basically. We, We are here to support small nurseries, big nurseries, people who are growing from seeds and, you know, making this industry still being alive, basically. We also support the content with horticultural talks. So we have many of the exhibitors. They help us by giving talks and explaining to people what they do, how they do it, and giving them some background and information, basically. And then people engage really well, and then they ask questions about their own experiences and their own gardens and things like that. So let's hear some of the best bits of the Harvest Talks programme now. First up was Claudio Bincioletto with his talk on foraging. The nutritional value is very high. Is, uh, in terms of mineral content, this has got uh, 10 times more than your normal, normal spinach. And uh, it has been used since uh, men essentially appeared in men. Chimps and other uh, uh, primates will eat nettles at daily diet. Uh, for us, uh, it has been very important, a source of vitamins during wars and during period when yield was very low. And uh, yeah, it is uh, an important plant when we talk wildlife. It is uh, used as indicator and uh, if, uh, if you think that it grows on disturbed soil, very rich in organic material. There, is, uh, there are some species on the ferns that are uh, blonde and they have very little 
needles. The medicinal effect, uh, apart from taking it as a uh, tea, is uh, really, you can eat it, and uh, we are equipped to eat nettles. They will sting all around your body, lips, and other things. But if you don't do this, if you don't have an insurance, and if you are not aware of health and safety, but if you pick a young leaves and you insert it in your mouth, it won't sting your mouth. And this is a, a, something that is used in food anthropology as we were eating nettles since we appeared in the planet. And normally there is a, a world championship down in Devon eating nettles, six meter tall. The complimentary are lots of pints of bitter, which really helps uh, to get uh, the stung out of the lips because it's amazing. Uh, okay, other things. What I've been looking at is plants that are interesting as food, decorative, and rabbits don't forage for them in my open restaurant. So nettle is one edible plant, environmentally very important. The other one is a salad burnet, sanguisorba minor, a very interesting flavor. It reminds of cucumber with a green walnut flavor. You have to learn to chew your weeds or herbs because the flavor takes five to seven seconds to permeate your mouth and your nose. So it's very important not just to think that that is something that you swallow. It's something that you have uh, to appreciate. It's like uh, what you do when you taste a nice piece of meat. If it's tender, but it should be flavorsome without uh, addition of salt, pepper and spices. Chris Smith of Pennard Plants in Somerset is a regular speaker at various RHS shows. His specialism is edible plants, fruits and vegetables. So I've got a few things in the way of tuber crops and we've got some fruits which you can just go out at this time of the year and be picking straight from the tree and some that you can use for preserves as well. And we'll start off with one or two tuber crops and one or two crops which again are perennial because one of the things I think about growing veg is uh, uh, not every year do you want to grow out, go out and plant the beetroot seed and the parsnip seed and things of that ilk. And then you have to go and replant them the following year because they're only an annual. So some things you might want to put in the garden which will just go on from year to year and you really don't have to do a lot with them. So we'll start off with a couple of members of the onion family. There's lots of onions and obviously some onions you need to sow the seed every year or you need to put the onion sets in and harvest. But these two are perennial. The first one, well I can't show it growing because it's only just starting to grow at this time of the year. It grows during the winter and into the summer. This is an example of Babington's leek. Now this is a British native plant, so it really will grow anywhere in the UK. Um, it's becoming quite rare in the wild in, in certain areas. And it's a perennial leek. It will produce shoots which look exactly like baby leeks. And you can cut them and the more you harvest, the more shoots the plant will produce. And over a period, it will produce a flower. And that flower at the top of the stem will produce bulbils. 
and those bulbs you can replant to make more Babington's leek. You can eat the tuber or the bulb as well, but if you eat the bulb or you dig up the bulbs and eat them, obviously you're destroying the crop and so you're actually not going to have them for the following season. So as long as you always leave some in, the plant will continue to produce. It can be grown in the flower border, looks very decorative with its flower, can be grown almost anywhere as long as it's not in deep shade, but very, very easy to do. And the other one is I always think a bit of fun. I just gave some to, to one of the schools down there. Um, this is an example. This is actually from the top of an onion. This is a tree onion, sometimes called Egyptian walking onion. And again, it's a perennial plant. You don't need to replant it every year. Every part of the plant is edible. Uh, the stems, the, the leaves, the onions that it produces at the top, and in fact, in the onions it produces underground. But again, you have to leave some in for future years. So this is a bulbill from the top of the onion. It grows to about two foot tall, doesn't produce a flower, it produces a cluster of onions which are quite strong in flavour. It's called the walking onion because if you leave those bulbils, it will eventually fall over and plant itself about two foot away from the parent plant. And the idea is if you leave that to do it every year, it will actually walk across your garden and into your neighbours. But anyway, so it's a bit of a novelty, but it will give you onion flavouring um, for a good part of the summer if you want to use the leaves as well. And so you can use the top set. Um, the other onion I'd recommend is the perpetual onion. Now, a lot of people get the perpetual onion mixed up with the Welsh onion. They're not the same. The Welsh onion dies down in the winter. The Welsh onion is a little bit like a giant chives. You use the foliage, um, it, you can break pieces off and use those as well. But in the winter, it's useless. The perennial onion is actually green right the way through the winter months and it produces its foliage right the way through the winter. During the summer, it looks a bit sad, doesn't like the hot weather, but during the winter, it thrives. And you can break pieces off that and use them as spring onions. You can use the foliage for onion flavouring. And it's just a really great thing. And as long as you always leave a piece in the ground, you'll always have it. Um, I think my grandfather used to call it scallions. Um, but in fact, it's, it's a plant that you can't grow from seed. You have to buy a plant because it doesn't produce flower. It just produces its foliage. So that's perpetual onion. Chris Smith of Pennard Plants in Somerset. Next was Lewis McNeil from Urban Orchards. As a result of planting all of these community orchards, we started, we started planting in about 2009, so we're just getting to a point now where we're beginning to see those trees starting to crop. And of course, there's lots of challenges in an urban environment, especially when you're planting into quite poor soils to start with. So one of our key focuses is really looking at the orchard as, a, as an ecosystem uh, and actually considering the soil considering the other plants in the orchard, considering how we're going to attract a higher diversity of invertebrates and birds that are all going to help with our pest control and hopefully negate the need to spray because one of the key things to remember is uh, things like apples are perhaps one of the most uh, sprayed fruits that we eat. And even if you buy organic apples, they will have a, a program of uh, copper-based sprays, copper sulfites being sprayed uh, throughout the summer to prevent uh, apple scab, which is a common fungal disease, which is the bane of the commercial grower's life because, as the name suggests, it makes the, the fruit not look very good. So actually... 
looking at in a really holistic sense and trying to actually uh, create a whole ecosystem uh, with a variety of beneficial plants with, uh, for example, because we're working with poor soils, looking at planting shrubs that are also uh, nitrogen-fixing shrubs into the system. So again, we're negating the need to then go and have to use fertilizers and things brought uh, outside of a system. So we're really looking at uh, truly sort of sustainable food systems. So now we've got almost 100 uh, community orchards in London alone. We've just started planting in some different places as well. And one of the key things originally with the project was, well, we're also going to try and encourage people to think about, to reconnect with this fruit heritage and to reconnect with some of the old recipes and some of the old ways of preserving fruits pre the era of being able to transport apples from New Zealand and, and South Africa. And it's worth noting that, you know, in this kind of pretty ridiculous economic system that we have, you know, where it actually works out cheaper to have fruit coming in from New Zealand or South America, even though actually we've got some of the prime uh, soils and conditions and climates for top fruit like apple and pears. So it's worth saying that actually I think only about 30% or so of our top fruit is actually growing in the UK. So really, you know, with that loss of heritage and with that loss of connection generally with, with nature that we've seen over a few uh, decades, of a few generations, in fact, uh, we've also lost some of these old ideas of how to deal with that fruit and actually even what some of these fruits are. As we'll have a look in a moment, there's some fruits that have fallen out of popularity that were really uh, more popular in Victorian times and Elizabethan times. Uh, and so we're trying to reintroduce some of those. So it's not just apples, not just pears, but we're also taking advantage of the fact that in London, of all the places in the UK, we've got this heat island effect. So we've got these extra uh, couple of degrees or so average temperatures. We've got all of these microclimates that are soaking up heat. Uh, and we're geographically, we're in the southeast, you know, so we're getting this warmer weather. So we can actually be quite experimental and start thinking, well, actually, what's going to be, what can we harvest in a few decades down the line? What can we experiment with now? So increasingly, we're looking at planting experimental trees. And already in the UK, people are starting to grow persimmons, for example, and experimenting with pomegranate. Uh, we're already getting some good apricot crops now in London orchards. So really starting to uh, prepare for the fact that things are changing. Climate change is happening very fast. And instead of just focusing on some of the older heritage varieties, which of course it is important to perpetuate and keep those, uh, but also looking at the fact that actually certain uh, top fruit species, they need a certain number of hours below a certain temperature uh, over the winter called winter chill hours in order for them to set good fruit the following year. So of course, if we're getting milder and milder winters, we need to start preparing for you know, years where we might not be getting as much fruit from some of these varieties and actually making it a little bit more experimental. And finally, our very own Ad Adams from the Horticultural Advisory Service here at Wisley on preserving the harvest, how to store winter vegetables. We're going to start with some traditional methods. So the first one we're going to talk about is storing root vegetables. So um, root vegetables can either be stored in the ground and harvested directly from the ground, or you can harvest them and store them. The advantage of storing in the ground is that they're much less likely to deteriorate by drying out. They are, of course, much more vulnerable to frosts, slugs, and potentially rotting if the soil's wet. So 
Carrots, parsnips, salsify, scorzonera are all best stored like this. Um, turnips you really want to dig up and use before midwinter. Um, celeriac also, you want to have that up by midwinter because it might rot. Um, beetroot and swede, you can store them in the ground, but by about midwinter it might be worth digging them and putting them indoors. So what you need to do, oh, and parsnips, they should be left in the ground and let them get a bit of frost because that will improve the flavour because it will convert starches to sugars. Um, you should exclude frost by covering your vegetables with a layer of straw, cardboard or bracken and then you can hold this down with netting or horticultural fleece and ideally pop some polythene on top of that because if you get your insulating material damp that will stop it working so effectively so the polythene to keep it dry is a great idea. This kind of protection will stop the ground freezing and it will mean you can lift vegetables even in the coldest of winter days and you should be able to keep them right through until about March. So that's a really good way to preserve your root veg. If you want to lift them and store them indoors, then, oh, there's some vegetables under fleece. If you want to lift them and store them indoors you need to make sure that this can be useful if you've got a cold area or it's wet or um, you're in a wet country or county. Only store vegetables indoors if they're in good condition. So if you've had a lot of carrot fly or something like that, don't lift them and try to store them because they're just not going to keep. If you're, when you go out to harvest, try and make sure that you're doing it on a dry day. Dig the things up, handle them gently, shake off any loose soil and remove the foliage. But don't wash them because that will dehydrate them and potentially could damage them. Then you can store them in boxes. These boxes can be wooden, cardboard, and you need to use a moist sand or peat as a base. So put in a layer of moist sand, then layer up your vegetables. Make sure they don't touch, and you can put the biggest vegetables at the bottom of the box because they will keep the longest. After each layer, put in another layer of the storage material and just keep repeating this process until the box is full. Then put your box in a cool, dark, frost-free place. If you can insulate it with some paper cardboard, then the shed would be fine. Um, sometimes if you haven't got a space under cover, you might want to use a clamp. A clamp's a very traditional method of storing, which you can have outside... And you, what you do is you get an 8-inch layer of soil or sand, a light sandy soil, or, and you place that on the ground, and then you pile your vegetables up in a pyramid, with, again, the biggest at the bottom, because they'll keep the longest. And then you cover your clamp with another 8-inch layer of straw all the way over the top of it, and then a 6-inch layer of soil on top of that, which you pat down. So it's quite, yeah, quite a lot of work, sir, yes. And perhaps something we don't have time for these days, but something in the past that people would have done to try to get their vegetables through the winter. And if you do want to do that, you know, open it up, only open it up on a, a nice dry, mild day, take your veg out and then seal it up again, and they can keep all winter like that. Expert speakers at the RHS London Harvest Show earlier this month. Remember, there's still time to get tickets for the Frost Fair in London this weekend on the 1st of November in the Linley Hall, Vincent Square, London. The Frost Fair is new this year. It'll have a European winter market theme, along with nurseries selling the best winter plants, stalls offering gardening advice, 
a variety of informative talks throughout the day, and a live reindeer family from midday to 4pm. Details on our website, rhs.org.uk forward slash shows. Next week, the first tickets go on sale for the 2016 RHS Flower Shows. Tickets for RHS members to Malvern, Chelsea, Hampton Court Palace and Tatton Park go on sale on the 2nd of November and sales open to the general public on the 1st of December. Tickets are always in high demand, so do order yours early. First chance to buy show tickets is just one of the benefits of being a member of the RHS. You can also get free advice on any gardening problem from the team by phone, post or email or in person at any of the RHS flower shows. Free access to all of our four RHS gardens and much more. If you're not already a member, why not find out more about the benefits? Just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. Whether you're an RHS member or not, there are plenty of attraction events coming up in the next few weeks. Join Nikki Rowling, a local willow weaver, for an introduction to weaving handled baskets to the RHS Garden Whistley on the 6th of November. Learn the basic skills of this ancient craft in this hands-on workshop. Materials are supplied, but please bring gloves and suitable clothing. Growing berries and currants for beginners at the RHS Garden Harlow Car is a one-day introductory course aimed at those interested in all these different types of soft fruit. It takes place on Saturday the 7th of November and includes an illustrated talk, demonstrations and a walk around the garden's fruit growing areas. If you'd like some ideas on plants for autumn interest, why not come to RHS Garden Rosemore for free talks in the Plant Centre at 11.30am and 2.30pm on the 7th and 8th of November and again on the 14th and 15th of November. If you fancy a head start on your Christmas shopping, why not come along to RHS Garden Hyde Hall for the Made in Essex Craft Show on the 7th to 8th of November. There will be a wide range of craft producers showcasing wonderful talent from across the county, 10am to 3pm. As always, you'll find details of all these events and much more on the RHS website. Go to rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens forward slash what's on. So that's all for this RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight when RHS experts will be tackling more of your gardening questions. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Tony Dickerson, and all the RHS Gardening Podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. 
Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. 